A warning to listeners. This episode contains explicit language and descriptions of sexual violence. I'm Amy Britton, and this is Canary, an investigative podcast from The Washington Post. Chapter 4. To Serve as a Judge After that first trip to Birmingham, it felt like something rare had been set into motion. Something that Carol had kept quiet and hidden for decades was now starting to make its way to the surface. Once I was back in D.C., Carol and I would talk frequently. Amy? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't hear you for a second. I'm, I'm good. How are you? And often she would circle back to the connection she felt to another woman who she didn't actually know, Lauren Clark. Lauren's attacker was sentenced by Judge Morrison to 10 days in jail. If she had not, you know, come forward the way she did and gotten your attention and had and did that story, if she hadn't done that, I probably would be just rolling along like I was before. And it's completely changed my life. Carol didn't know Lauren, but Carol said this loyalty to Lauren, a stranger, had propelled her this far. There are moments of fear that grip me, but I've really, like, come so far in a strange way. She's really important to me. And Carol said she believed she needed to keep going. She thought Lauren and every other sexual assault victim in Judge Morrison's courtroom had a right to know. To know that the man in a position of authority in their case had himself been accused of sexual assault. It's possible that this happened to other people. I just have a sense of culpability or complicity that somehow by me keeping a secret that I never, you know, signed up for, nobody asked me to keep that secret, you know, that I have somehow maybe hurt somebody like Lauren Now that Carol was coming forward against Judge Morrison, I felt like my understanding of Lauren's story was incomplete. I remember coming back from that trip to Birmingham and rushing into the newsroom and just pulling open my old file folders from Lauren's case. And it felt like there was a shadow over the first story, now knowing what Carol told me. I realized I didn't know much at all about Judge Morrison. I didn't know if Lauren's case was out of the ordinary. I simply didn't know how often victims of sexual assault stood before him in his courtroom. And did he treat them differently? Had this accusation in his past affected his judgment? I wasn't sure I could ever answer those questions, but I knew that I had to find out as much as I could. So I started to do my own research to try to get a fuller picture of Judge Truman Morrison. Over the past few decades, Judge Morrison emerged as a champion for criminal justice reform. He's well-known in the District of Columbia, and he's also a renowned expert on the topic across the country. His main passion is getting rid of cash bail, the controversial system that leaves people locked up because they can't afford to pay court fees. Every time a person is unnecessarily held in a jail cell until their trial, that's an immense human tragedy. 
Judge Morrison spoke at a Justice Department symposium held during President Obama's first term. We, we outlawed basically detaining people with money. And a couple of years ago, he was at a forum on criminal justice hosted by The Atlantic. We changed one sentence in our bail law in the early 90s that completely transformed us. And once bail reform became a popular national cause, he began to travel around the country to talk about it. He's been on radio. I'm joined now by Truman Morrison. TV. Judge Truman Morrison. His comments even made it onto HBO's popular late-night program with John Oliver. We are the only city in America where tonight, at our jail, there is not a single man or woman who is sitting because they don't have the money to meet their money bond. And it's a testament, it's a testament to the state of our justice system that that qualifies as bragging, because that should be the norm. He's like a bus driver showing up at school saying, 23 kids picked up, 23 kids dropped off, I pitched a perfect game. But not everyone is for this movement. Some say it overlooks the risk to the community. Here he is on NPR discussing that criticism. I imagine there must be a case in there in the time since uh, D.C. eliminated cash bail where you did free somebody before trial who you determined was not a risky person, would not reoffend, and they did, and maybe in a violent way. Certainly. Yeah? Does that, so does that give you pause? That happens. Of course it gives me pause. But I would say to you a couple of things. You know, we, we are never going to reach the point where we can perfectly predict human behavior. He still speaks frequently on this issue. During the reporting for this story, Judge Morrison happened to have a public event scheduled to talk about bail reform. It was in Michigan, close to where he grew up. Judge Morrison has been in this area, truly a national icon in this area. I wasn't ready to ask him questions yet, but I decided to go and sit in the crowd and just listen to what he had to say. The event was held in a small church in East Lansing. About 100 people were there to hear him speak. View it as a continuing privilege and high honor to serve as a judge. And I have just vast respect for the women and men in this country who manage to do the challenging job of being a trial judge uh, over time uh, in in an honorable way. Judge Morrison is now 76 years old. At this event, he was wearing a gray suit, a pink tie, and a pair of cowboy boots. He had white hair and a white beard, and his glasses kept slipping down his nose. Most of his speech focused on the damage he said that was done by putting people behind bars. He challenged the dozens of people in the crowd to consider how their lives would be changed if they spent just one day in jail. Think for tonight, think tonight for three minutes about how radically your lives, each of you here today, would be truly destabilized in a profound way by suddenly being forced to living life behind bars in a human cage. Let's not mince words. That is what a jail cell is for its inhabitants. And he brought up this idea of being in a cell and living in fear. Live with constant anxiety and fear of assaults, sexual and otherwise. 
fearing a sexual assault. That's what Judge Morrison challenged this crowd to imagine. Think for a moment how you would fare if you were, even for a short time, deprived essentially of everything that gives life daily meaning. I wasn't quite sure what to make of Judge Morrison's remarks. He called a jail cell a human cage, and he brought up seemingly spontaneously the idea of being sexually assaulted in a cell. <laughs> we thank you so much, Judge Morrison. Carol wanted me to know early on that she had nothing against Judge Morrison's legal philosophy. She agreed on just about everything he seemed to stand for. Bail reform, criminal justice reform, fair treatment for people who are poor. But she also felt this deep conflict over his position on the bench. This position of authority, of deciding someone else's fate. Of determining what happens to someone who has committed a crime. Especially a crime of sexual violence. In recent years, judges handling sexual assault cases frequently come under scrutiny, especially if they've handed out a sentence that raises eyebrows. A New Jersey judge is facing censure for asking a possible rape victim if she tried to close her legs to prevent an assault. A group of Alaska residents are trying to take a judge off the bench after a controversial sentence. Next to new fallout tonight from the sentencing of a Stanford star athlete convicted of a brutal sexual assault. That judge is now under fire tonight. Brock Turner ordered to serve just six months after his conviction on three felony counts. Carol asked what I could find out about Judge Morrison's record. She wanted to know how many sex-related cases he presided over and how he had handled those cases. As I would find out, it wasn't an easy question to answer. If you want to look at the dozens of judges in D.C. to see how they stack up, who sentences the most harshly, who's the most lenient, there is no way for you to easily get that information. Judges are shielded from that type of public scrutiny. Because D.C. doesn't release case data for each judge, I needed to figure out a way to find all of the cases that Judge Morrison had ever handled. D.C. Superior Court has a website for the public to search any case, criminal or civil. But to search through those case files, you need a case docket number or the name of the defendant. There's no easy way for you to go to this website and search through these cases by judge. So that was our problem. We knew that Judge Morrison had probably presided over thousands of cases during his 40 years, but we had no way to find them. So I went to someone who I thought could help me. I am writing a computer program that does something that is pretty tedious over and over and over again. This is Stephen Rich. He's a data reporter for the investigative team at The Post. So what I have uh, this program do is go to the web page, do a search, um, and then return the search results into uh, a spreadsheet, um, and then do that hundreds of thousands of times. Stephen's program would search the court system over and over again, gathering every case that exists in the D.C. courthouse. 
Then the program would filter through this massive pool of cases, searching for any case heard by Judge Morrison. I'm trying to figure out how long these things were running. Yeah, they pull about 250 cases an hour. So with 278,000 cases. Stephen estimated it would take over 1,000 hours of work. If I tried to do this manually, it would take years to go through every case stock in the courthouse, kind of looking for needles in a haystack. But Stephen created a shortcut to pull Judge Morrison's cases. From there, we can sort of look at what happened in those cases. We can see what the charges were, what, the, what they were convicted of, how long they were sentenced for. And so we can really start to get a, a more broad look at his body of work over that time that we couldn't get otherwise because we don't really know what cases that he has adjudicated other than anecdotally. This data reporting was still very much a work in progress. It would take about a month for Stephen to finish running the program, and I wasn't sure what his search would ultimately turn up. But I knew this much. It would only be a starting point. I would still have to sort through all of these cases by hand to see how many of them were related to sexual assault. Unfortunately, that tedious step could not be solved by Stephen's program. In the meantime, I started digging into the archives of the Washington Post. Judge Morrison had been on the bench for 40 years, and I thought there was a decent chance that some of his cases had been covered by the press. The first one I found was from 1981, when Judge Morrison presided over a high-profile sexual assault case. A 30-year-old schoolteacher was indicted on charges that he engaged in sex acts with five of his male students, who were between the ages of 14 and 17 years old. The teacher was ultimately convicted on six counts of sodomy and four counts of taking indecent liberties with the minor. I did some research into what a typical prison sentence might be for this type of crime in D.C. decades ago. And the only thing I could find was a report from D.C. from 1999. It looked at a narrow window of criminal cases from 1993 to 1998. In that report, I looked at the average sentences for adults convicted of multiple charges, with sodomy being the most serious one. And I found there had been just six cases in that category. The median minimum prison term for those cases was nine years. Back in 1981, when he was hearing this case about the school teacher, Judge Morrison said in court that he was, quote, mindful of the difficulty of a case of this type that did not involve physical force. And he said that the victims had what he called character impediments. After the teacher's conviction, it was then up to Judge Morrison to determine the sentence. He suspended a jail sentence and instead placed the teacher on probation. This teacher, who sexually abused five of his students, essentially walked free. This was just one case. I wasn't sure what else we would find. By now, I was several months into this reporting, but just beginning a tedious process of unearthing decades-old sexual assault cases and looking at how Judge Morrison handled them. But I couldn't forget about the woman who started this journey, someone I hadn't talked to now in quite some time, someone who I thought had a right to know what I was doing and why I was suddenly looking into Judge Morrison's record. 
I was sitting with Lauren Clark in an office building in downtown D.C. Since her story published, her life had changed. And she was navigating this new world where people in D.C. knew about what happened to her. Clients were even bringing it up in the salon chair as she was cutting their hair. But Lauren had no idea about Carol. Now I was ready to tell her. So I got an email um, a couple months ago from a woman named Carol who lives in Birmingham, Alabama. And then when I got on the phone with her, she told me that she was calling because the information was related to Judge Morrison. You want me to keep going? Or yeah. Yeah. Um, she would like to meet you at some point in this process, but I will give you a summary of it and explain why. I- and then I shared what Carol had told me about Truman Morrison assaulting her. Oh my God. I feel like my stomach is just like being like right now. I'm like, I'm so mad. I'm so fucking mad. I already felt like the odds are so stacked against people in the justice system against survivors and it's like to know this, like, it makes it just feel like so much deeper and like, I don't know. You just think like, why would he as a judge hold another man accountable for what he's done to him? Lauren suddenly got up from the table. (laughs) She was standing by the windows, staring out at the street. The further you go into these things, the more fucked up they get. And, like, this is feels really, you know, difficult for me and my situation, but, like, I think, like, what is bothering me the most and feels most overwhelming is, like, that I'm just one of so many women who've, like, sat in his courtroom. This is his job. It just feels so wrong, and it's, like, so upsetting to know that we live in a world that's like so okay with all of this and like just the people like that are supposed to be deciding what to do about these things are doing these things (laughs) that's one thing that I've been doing is trying to figure out how many cases he's handled um how are you feeling I mean just like Stunned, um, really angry. Like I want to like go outside and stop me and like just yell. <laughs> I feel a lot of like tenderness for Carol, and um, I think you know what she is doing is even braver than what I did. 
um, this is so like embedded in her her life and like her family and um, it's just a completely different situation. Um, I had so many things, you know, that made it easier for me, like you know, a guilty plea and um, all these things, and it's just a, a different beast. So I am in awe, in awe of her, um, but I'm also very angry uh, at this man. Would you be willing to meet Carol? Yeah. She really wants to meet you. Yeah. Um, I know that it's kind of like crazy to even think oh, of it. So but crazy. This is so the, crazy. The only way that she's even at this point in her life and this point in her healing process is because of you. And she's told me that repeatedly. So. I just want to give her a hug. Like, I'll, I'll do whatever I can to um, support this process. Okay, thank you, I appreciate that. Thank you. In the next chapter of Canary. As her father, I had no suspicions at all. But I will not try